Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kotz. And I'm Stephanie Sambari, and we are the hosts of That's So Retrograde. Heard of us? For the past 200 and some episodes, we've been trying to figure out what the hell wellness is. We have inspiring and fun conversations with all types of amazing people, from healers to comedians to whatever's in between. We're five years in, but we're just getting started. So hop on board every Thursday to join the party and route to living your best life. And don't forget your cannabis. Or to check us out on Instagram at So Retrograde. That's right. Bye. See you there. Hey everyone, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, the founder and CEO of Create and Cultivate, and this is Work Party, a podcast for a new generation of women who are ditching the rulebook and redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we bring in leading female entrepreneurs for real talk advice on the topics that matter most to the modern career woman from hiring to mentorship to raising money and so much more. Whether you're pivoting to a new industry, negotiating a raise, turning your side hustle into a full-time gig or pitching your company to investors, we're giving you the tips and tricks you need to take your career to the next level. Ready to make some money moves? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Do you remember your favorite television show growing up? The shows that not only got you through your adolescence year, but maybe even where you found your first TV crush or experienced the tears from that one episode that pulled on your heartstrings and made you want more. We've all been there. And we bet you can recount those memorable scenes and quotes too. So where do the creators of these newly reimagined television shows even start when they want to reintroduce their beloved show back into the world? And how do they continue to keep their episode topics relevant and trending in such a tough industry where the audience attention is so quick to jump ship? Today, I'm sitting down with producer and Emmy award-winning writer, Tracy Wigfield, to discuss exactly that. How she helped create and write the highly anticipated and reimagined Saved by the Bell TV series on NBC Universal streaming service, Peacock. We'll be tapping into the reimagined show, the path that got her there, including winning an Emmy alongside co-writer Tina Fey, Hello, amazing partner. And how she balances all this while being a working mom in the process. Welcome, Tracy, to the show. We're so excited to have you. We always like to start sort of at the beginning. You started your career as a staff writer on 30 Rock. I mean, one Mm -hmm. of the most hilarious shows of all time with some really recognizable names. I mean, obviously, Tina Fey, a legend. What was your career journey like leading up to this point? You know, how did you end up getting the gig at 30 Rock? 
I went to Boston College, Jesuit, like liberal arts school. So it wasn't really a school that that really focused on entertainment or writing or anything. So I was like an English and a theater major. And I knew I wanted to work in TV probably. Um, So I just like applied to a bunch of stuff when I got out of school. I applied to like the NBC page program, rejected. And and a bunch of other, you know, kind of jobs. I had an interview at Weinstein Company. (laughs) Didn't get it. They rejected me. You know, I, I just kind of spent, I feel like... You know, the first five months after school, I remember feeling like, oh, my God, I'm floundering. I don't even have like a lead. And, you know, and the the first lucky break was like I got a job as a page at, at the Late Show with David Letterman. And I got it really through, you know, a kind of a fluke thing where it was like my mom's cousin's cousin was an accountant there and gave my resume in because I had like applied online and didn't hear anything. And so, you know, you get like ten dollars an hour or whatever minimum wage was then and you know, you see people in the audience and stuff and you don't have anything to do with the show. But the one lucky thing was one of my jobs was I was supposed to like stand outside of the bathroom and tell people who are seeing the show like this is where the bathroom is. And it was right next to the control room. And so I sometimes got to talk to like producers on the show and stuff in very like limited amounts. And, you know, one one producer, this guy, Rob Burnett, who was an EP on Letterman and ran Worldwide Pants, had a show that was a pilot that he uh, and his writing partner were making. And like from that, I got like a PA job on that, that I was a writer's PA on this ABC show. And then that filmed in the same building as 30 Rock at Silver Silver Cup Studios. You know, so when that show got canceled after the first season, I I literally just walked around the building and handed my resume. (laughs) It's like a story from 1965, like handed my resume to people. Because at the time it was like Sopranos film there and 30 Rock, I, I think. And so I gave people resumes and then that boss of mine gave me a good recommendation. They were looking for a writer's assistant anyway on 30 Rock. So I, I got a really lucky that that was the most lucky break to get on a, sh- a show as a writer's assistant. That was a really good show and and went for a long time. Yeah, amazing. Um, I love that so much. I actually was a, a page at NBC. I what was it? I'd love to do it now. Well, so <laughs> I was part of the special projects. It was during the Bush Kerry election. So I did the coverage <laughs> on the DNC. In Boston, yeah. which I'm also, I went to Holy Cross for a year. So just all the connections from there. Boston, That's so funny. NBC. Yeah, we have all the connections. But yeah, no, I wanted to get into BC. I did not get into BC. So congratulations. It was the that. same school. We, we, it was basically the we, same we, shit. And then I transferred to NYU. So I was like, I was okay. living, or we were parallel living our lives. But that's awesome. So, you know, I think there's a lot of hype and excitement around the writer's room, right? Like what right. goes on in a writer's room? What are you really doing? So one, can you walk us through that experience of like day one in the writer's room? What went on? How, you know, how did you kind of adapt? And also, you know, did anyone take you under their wing? How did you yeah. kind of learn the ropes? Yeah. I, I mean, so in a writer's room, basically what it is, is it's, you know, usually there's like 10 to 12 writers and there's like a writer's assistant who's sitting in the corner, like taking notes on what's being said. And the writer's job is to, you know, figure out, write the scripts, obviously, but a lot of it is, starting from just talking about stories and and breaking what each story, what each episode is going to be about, and then rewriting the scripts and stuff together. Um, So it's very intimidating. And, you know, I had never been in a room before when I started on 30, not really, you know, it was also a weird situation. I remember because 
Tina at the time was shooting that movie, Baby Mama. So in between setups, she would come and like be in the room, which, you know, even that I felt like it took me a year to not be terrified to like open my mouth around her because I was so kind of in awe of her. And, you know, so we were in this like weird hot trailer and then she would come in every now and then like with, you know, holding her, her baby. Oh yeah. Because she was probably like one at the time. This was like 10 years ago. You know, it was very intimidating because everybody's talking really fast and everyone's really funny and pitching jokes and stuff. And it felt overwhelming, but definitely multiple people I felt like took me under their wing. Like, you know, there were other female writers, uh, Kay Cannon and Tammy Sager were on the show and they both were really helpful to me, but male writers too, you know, like ladies and men who helped me. And then like, kind of then in the future went on to like, when I made my own show, like this one guy, Jack Burdett, like helped me run my first show. And then, you know, there's these two guys who I've known since I was like 23, Josh Siegel and Dylan Morgan, who were writers on the show with me at 30 Rock and writers on that first ABC show. And then now like, we're like my number two on like great news and on Saved by the Bell and like have just now for like 15 years been helping me write my shows. So it it was like a place where I, I made a lot of like really important relationships. I was going to say, it's not a traditional working environment. I feel like you're in a room with 10 people that you probably become very close with. Yeah. And especially that show, like we, we really worked so hard. The hours were really, really grueling. And Mm. and some of that is just like at the time or in New York or something. Since then, I have not been on a show that was that hard that like, I mean, I guess that's why the show was really good and won a bunch of awards. But, you know, it, you spend a lot of time with the people just talking and talking and talking. So you do get to know them pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of awards, you went on to become an Emmy Award winner alongside yeah. Tina Fey for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series. So hard work paid off. Um, yeah. so can you share a little bit about working alongside Tina? I mean, obviously, she's such a strong female character on the screen and obviously off the screen as well, and especially in such a male-dominated space previously. What was that like and how has that affected your career in the long term? I mean, she's the best. Like she gave me my career basically, right? Like, so her and her writing partner, Robert Carlock hired me to be an assistant on 30 Rock. And then they were the ones who then gave me the shot to write on the show. And then during the time I was writing on the show, were incredibly supportive and, you know, and Tina let me write the finale with her that we won the Emmy for. And then even beyond that, like when I went on to pitch my own first show, they were producers on it and kind of guided me every step of the way, how to make a show and all this other stuff that when you're just on staff, you kind of don't learn. Yeah. So, I mean, I owe her a great deal of gratitude. Also just beyond like the practical, actual helping me and getting me a deal at Universal and like that kind of stuff that she did for me. Like it has really been a gift that in my career, like I've, I've basically only worked for women basically, you know, cause like I worked for Tina for all of 30 rock. And then I worked for Mindy Kaling on Mindy's show, uh, for 40 years. And then I ran my own shows. So, you know, it just, even as a thing to see every day, a woman in charge, it's, it's been the nicest experience. And, and I, I have not really had the thing that I think many female writers, especially many female writers of color, I think have had where, you're just in a room where you're the only person who looks like you and your boss just like <laughs> doesn't understand you or on like a deep level. Like, you know, I haven't had that 
experience. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Hopefully more people will have that experience, you know, the yeah. that are working for you now and like all those different things. So let's cut to present day. So as we know, the critically acclaimed Peacock original Saved by the Bell is streaming now and has been renewed for a second season. So congratulations on that. So obviously iconic, beloved comedy to new and old fans. What were the steps you took when envisioning what this, you know, the new series storyline would look like, what the tone was, how do you make it feel cool and relevant? Like how did you approach it? Yeah. So, you know, I had just been coming off of a reboot. So I was like a little hesitant about doing another one. I, it was not a show I created, but I worked with Mindy, um, on this remake of four weddings and a funeral on Hulu. So I just finished that and I, and universal, told me that the rights to Save by the Bell were, you know, available, uh, which was something I had asked about a while ago. And I was like, ah, do I want to do like another remake? Because you just kind of open yourself up to criticism of people being like, why are you doing this? This sounds terrible. But it did seem like really fun, mostly because I was like a huge fan of the show as a kid. And it seemed like there was an exciting opportunity to do something I had not seen before. You know, I guess in the drama space, like Riverdale or something has, has done something similar. But the idea of changing the format of it and changing the audience that it's for, because the original was a multi-cam like Saturday morning comedy for kids, basically, not even teenagers. And so the idea of making it single cam and, you know, fleshing out the world and, and making it a hard comedy for people my age who watched the show originally and poking fun at the original show felt like I, something I hadn't seen before. So that seemed like really exciting to me. And, you know, and then in just digging into it and starting to think about like, okay, so whose POV does this want to be from? And, you know, if, if I really want Bayside to be this place that's still living in this kind of like 1990s bubble where these kids never have any problems, it's like, mm-hmm. how could that be possible? And so then it, it felt like themes of, of like privilege and, and wealth disparity and, you know, and education inequality sort of like were right on the table um, and that seemed really exciting and kind of um, unexpected for a Saved by the Bell reboot. Hey, y'all, let's take a minute for our ad partners. I'm so excited to talk to you guys about NBC Universal Peacock's Saved by the Bell. The critically acclaimed comedy from today's guest, Emmy Award winner Tracy Wickfield, is eligible for outstanding comedy series and all eligible categories. In this reimagined new series, California Governor Zach Morris gets into hot water for closing too many underfunded high schools and proposes they send the affected students to the most well-funded schools in the state, including Bayside High. The influx of new students gives the privileged Bayside kids who never had a problem that can't be solved in 20 minutes a much-needed dose of reality. This has been a fun, nostalgic must-watch for me and is definitely worth having on your radar for your next TV binge. To learn more about the series and its eligibility, visit PeacockFYC.com for more details. That's PeacockFYC.com for more details. Now back to the episode. You, um, in season one, tackle a multitude of important issues, you know, as you mentioned, race, inclusion, class, education. But obviously, as you said, it's a hard comedy. So how do you balance tackling these issues with care and respect while also being funny. I feel like that's such a challenging thing for a writer. Yeah. Well, I think the intention always, at least for me, always has been, let's make the funniest show possible. I think like something being like, I have something really important to say. It's like comes out bad or preachy or something. And, and I think what the trick was for, for me, for this season was, you know, first of all, making sure our room is really diverse and inclusive and, and, 
included a lot of different people whose experience was more directly related to this experience we talk about on the show of these kids who grow up in an underfunded, you know, in a go to an underfunded uh, LA school that gets shut down. That isn't my experience, you know? And so it would be wrong for me to just fill the room with a bunch of people like me who went to Boston college or whatever. So it's like making sure the room uh, is the right group of people. And then even though it is a comedy and even though 90% of this will never go on the screen, like it, it did feel important to kind of have conversations about like with each of these storylines, like, now what exactly are we trying to say here? And like, if we do a story about the one kid from who's coming in from the underfunded school gets accused of stealing iPads or something, it's like, what exactly do we want the end point of that to be? And making sure you have these larger conversations about what you want to be saying about harder topics, just so everyone's clear before then you, you know, make it funny. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously in today's society, pop culture is a key part of staying relevant. And the series often uses, you know, pop culture throughout as a heightened lens as a vehicle for social commentary. But what's your advice for aspiring show writers or content creators who are looking to use current pop culture as a way to stay relevant, but also draw on these important conversations that are happening. The funniest things to me are things that are observations that feel true. And, you know, and I just like talking about pop culture and, you know, and talking about celebrities and stuff. And it feels true to my conversations. And that kind of thing feels funny to me. The most important thing is that we're making a comedy show. Like I, I wouldn't want to watch a show that, you know, yes, we need to be saying the right things and there's no reason to make a show that doesn't have a point of view or something important to say, but I watch shows because they're funny, you know, not because I'm like, ah, I'll learn the answer to racism tonight. (laughs) We don't have it, you know, we're not going to get it on the Saved by the Bell reboot. So I think like if you're balancing those two things, like, making things funny. And, you know, I think pop culture jokes are part of that is always going to be like the priority a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your career and then also personal life. So obviously you're an Emmy award-winning writer, executive producer, showrunner. That's a lot um, on its own, obviously a substantial amount of time and commitment, but you're also a mom of two um, little ones. So obviously how, you know, one of the questions we, you know, are often talking about, like, have you adapted, you know, the way that you work of being an executive producer for a popular show, being a mom, like any tips or tricks of like how you've been able to do it all? I mean, how I can do it all is like, I have a lot of help. Like I have, mm-hmm. a, I have a nanny and I also have had for the past year and a half, like my parents living with us. And I honestly don't think I could do it if I didn't like, cause my husband works full time too. And it's every mom's struggle, but like, you know, the only way I've been able to make it work is like three adults per, per child in this yeah. house right now, Thanks you know? So like, that's the answer. And it's, it's a struggle, but I also think I'm very lucky in that, like when you're the boss, like, yes, there's a lot of work to do and, and a lot of like responsibility on your shoulders, but like you are uh, able to like make your own hours. And I could be like, oh, and I'll, I'll finish this when the kids, you know, when the kids are asleep at nine or whatever, we're like, it's way harder for everyone else who is not in charge. Like it's Mm -hmm. way harder if you're like, Oh, but I have a deadline at seven. And so I can't put, you know, I can't be better or whatever. So in a lot of ways, like it is easier to, to be in a position where you have some power over your schedule. Yeah. I mean, I do think like coming out of 2020, 
when everyone was working from home and understanding like that can be done and there can be some flexibility amongst employees. Like, I just think it's important, you know, obviously even for moms that aren't the boss that like, there is this level of flexibility, you know, in that way. Yeah. And I think that's great. Like there needed to be, and hopefully it continues. There needed to be a, you know, some sort of shift where it's like, and being at home has been, you know, obviously really hard. And I think much more hard for kids who have to be in school. Like my kids are three and one, but like, you know, at least being at home, there's been nice parts to it where like at lunch, I can go have lunch with my kids rather than just not seeing them for 12 hours and stuff. Right. You know, I hope that coming out of 2020, like we keep the good parts. Yeah. Agree. Just more flexible. It's like, you don't have to be in person for a meeting. We don't have to make these deadlines. So you know, so harsh necessarily, like maybe we can make allowances in the way we have been this last year because everybody knows like, yeah, we're all going through it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that'll be one of the good things coming out of 2020 from the last year. Just curious, like, you know, obviously, you know, I'm sure for the writer's room or whatever, like you all have to be in person. Did you have to get on the zoom train and do that? And how did that affect the the vibe? I had like a wild COVID experience where like I was doing the first season of Saved by the Bell, I was pregnant. And so I had the baby February 28th in the middle of shooting the show. And so then when we shut down for two weeks, I kind of naively was like, oh, perfect. So I get, I get a little need this. this is ideal for me. And then I was like, wait, what is this? I had the baby. And then two weeks later, we shut down production. And then we had to go back in person, you know, like full COVID style uh, and finish the last three episodes. And then this season and our writer's room have been in person, but then this season now we are on zoom, which you know what has been fine. Like I complained about it for like a day and then it's like everything you just kind of adjust to it. And there's some real benefits to it. Like it makes you really efficient. Like in writer's rooms, I feel like when you're in person, there can be like, eh, let's go get snacks. Let's watch this. 17 minute YouTube video, let's whatever, like, but you're not doing that on zoom because most right. of everyone's like, I want to get off. So it, it's made us more efficient. We don't have late nights ever, you know? So there's been good things about it. I don't think it's affecting the quality of the show, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think it's, I think that's exactly right. I think it's made the people more efficient. Yeah. No one just wants to hang out on zoom. Hang out on zoom and like try to figure out stuff. Yeah. 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 Everyone's like, I got to get these good jokes in. So for season one, what was your favorite episode or one of your favorites? I liked a lot of them, but I I like the one where, um, (laughs) where they had a house party. I thought that one came out really funny. Slater does a dance from the original, the original show that one we were shooting right before uh, COVID hit. So maybe that's why I feel fondly towards it, but, um, yeah. And, and I just thought the director did a good job. We had this storyline where like Daisy is like drunk for the first time, the main girl. And so she is in this like stylized kind of like euphoria reality. And I just thought it came out funny. That's awesome. Yeah. I love a house party high school experience. Yeah. I feel like also probably because it was like the last probably bigger set you had. Maybe that's why I'm just like, Oh, so many people so close together. It's funny watching TV now when people are at parties, you're like, ooh, we're just, they're just all in this room together. Like it makes you feel uncomfortable. You're like, what's wrong with me? I know, Um, totally. Awesome. Well, you know, obviously you've reimagined this iconic 90s television show um, and have season two coming up. So what's your vision for season two of Saved by the Bell? Can you reveal any little juicy tidbits and, and what's next for you? Like, what are you excited about right now? 
you know, this season we coming off of last year, which was, you know, a lot, a lot of the kids kind of facing these big insurmountable forces, like, you know, (laughs) fixing education in California and trying to fight against parents who were trying to kick them out of their high school. Like it felt, you know, it was comedy, but it felt heavy a little bit. And it really seemed like we wanted to take the opportunity to like, let the season be like a little more fun. And, and especially the Douglas kids, the kids who come into the school, let them have a good time and just like be students at Bayside and find, you know, have relationships and like get into trouble in ways, you know, in ways that last season, I don't, I don't think we really got to do. And, and so that was, and also just coming off of this year in general, like, we had a joke at the end of season one where we mentioned coronavirus. So we were a little bit painted into a corner where, you know, you always have to make that decision. Like every showrunner is going to have to make that decision. Like, and for some shows, I think it's really obvious, like, you know, on Superstore, they were like, well, we're, you know, essential workers. So we had this season has to be about COVID, but for us, like we hadn't mentioned it. So it felt like we had to talk about it. And so the first episode we do, mention it and deal with it but then we don't the rest of the season it's just yeah. kind of like fun and you know and there's fun like jesse slater stuff uh where there are kind of there's sparks between them and stuff and i think it's gonna be really good yay i love that yeah that's true it's like do we do we go down that road or do we not go down that road i think it's, yeah. it's a lot of people i think if everyone went down that road everyone would be like look we don't want to relive we this can't, no more but yeah this, that's how we felt too yeah, yeah it's like Honestly, especially like a, a funny comedy whatever but superstore i mean there's this like meme going around that's like no like no one will ever be able to forget what the grocery store looked like in like april 2020 of like people with just like crazy like wearing full poncho totally yeah like, yeah yeah, exactly. Really insane, which obviously makes good comedy. So amazing. All right. Well, we're going to wrap with some sentence finishers. Are you ready? I hope so. I didn't read these. In it. <laughs> good. good, good. It's okay. That's usually makes it better. So the three traits that got me to where I am today are. My sense of humor. I think just kind of something I was born with. And I, I don't think you could do this job if you don't have it. One part of my job that like you don't think about as a, like writers have to do is like salesmanship. I think I'm kind of good at like uh, talking people into things. I love my job. I, I think that's a big one. Like I, I don't yeah. think you can be successful at something if you don't. Gen- I genuinely love being in a writer's room and like it's so annoying and hard often and I often hate it. But like I really love making jokes and and making people laugh with you know with other funny people. So that I think has been a key to my success. Yeah, no, salesmanship is such a good one too. It's, it's part of every job. Yeah. I think it's, it's even if it's, you're not the salesperson, you have to, what is it? ABS, always be selling or whatever that like dumb thing. Doubt. And it, yeah, and you can get along without it for a long time. But then when you get to like the level where you're, where you're selling shows, where you're like developing stuff, it's like your whole job is just like, this is the idea. This is the idea. And then now you have to talk an actor into it and talk a director into it. It's just like a lot of the job really, which I didn't know. Totally. The best career advice I've ever received. You know, when I was making my own first show and Tina was a producer on it, I remember she, you know, she would say a lot of times, like, what is your gut on this? The idea being like, you know, the answer often. And even when you're in situations where you're not quite, you're not ready to be doing this big job or whatever. It's like, you have everything you need to be doing it. And there's no Mm -hmm. like, you know, masterclass you're going to watch and you're going to learn it. Like, you know, the answer often. And so it's like, I still try to like 
tap into that as much as, and listen to that when it's like, you know, it's easier to do one thing. I'm like, ah, I have this like nagging feeling. We shouldn't be doing it this way or whatever. It's oh, it's all often, often, often. It's, yeah. You know, so it's, you know, that's kind of basic, but I, I do think that's like a smart way to, to work. I'll be like, my instinct's telling me this and people listen to it often more yeah. than say, I think maybe whatever. Yeah. My instinct. And also they're like, well, she's gotten this far. So yeah. maybe she has like magical yeah. instincts or something. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Is a con. But maybe you do. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. The last three shows I've been watched are. I'm in the middle of three right now. I'm watching Girls 5 Eva on Peacock. And um, this isn't just a plug for Peacock, but I am watching two Peacockers. And um, Rutherford Falls, I'm right in the middle of. And I'm watching Handmaid's Tale. But I mean, it's so close to reality at this point. It's oh, a lot. And I think they're like torturing her. Like, I, I, it's Ugh. really too dark. But um, I am going to finish it. I'm going to finish it. Yeah, it. yeah. It gets, there's some good stuff that happens if you're still in the torture part. So yeah, I looked ahead a little. I'm like, oh, yeah, you kind of have to. But I was um, like, he's in a sweatshirt. Things are going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, we're all safe. And your favorite nostalgic show from your earlier years. Besides Saved by the Bell, obviously. Right, right. You know, I was just on a pan. I was just on a panel, and I with a woman who had written on um, on Dawson's Creek, and I like as she was talking about, I like forgot how much how much I loved Dawson's Creek. Like, it was painful, so felt painful feelings for like Joey Potter and her unrequited love. I loved that show. <laughs> it was legendary. It was yeah. so good. I remember like being in my college dorm, being like, "New Dawson's!" Like, so yeah. excited. Yeah. So okay. Good. Success to me is. I think it's like making the life for yourself that you want. And then like, once you do that, using, you know, using the power you have to, to empower other people to do the same thing, you know, like, I think you've reached a level when you reach a level of success where you're like, okay, now I don't just have to be like desperately grasping and fighting to get to the place I need to be. Like I can start like developing uh, shows for other writers and, you know, picking projects that lift other people up as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. Amazing. Well, Tracy, thank you so much. Can you tell everyone where they can check yeah. out Saved by the Bell and more info on you? Yes. Yeah, season one is on Peacock and season two comes out maybe November. I don't know when, but, but in the fall. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was fun. Yay. For more inspiring conversations like this one, subscribe to Work Party on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to rate and review us or show us some love on social. We love seeing you tune in every week and share your favorite episodes. We're at Work Party on Instagram and at It's a Work Party on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your host, Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party.